Welcome to New England Taken WKXL, 1450 AM, 103.9 FM, and nhtalkradio.com. I'm your host, AJ Kierstead. New England Take broadcasts weekly, 6 p.m. on Fridays, so be sure to check out the show then live. You can also check out the podcast version of the show and the videos from the program at thenewenglandtake.com. Uh, as long as all the rest of WKXL shows you can get a hold of on there, including Off the Record, New Hampshire Today. Um, but today I'm excited to be joined by John Skippa, who's the director of New Hampshire Police Standards and Training. Thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having us. So it, it seems like the perfect time to have a conversation on police standards and training with everything that's been going on in the world over the last year. So, But I... I people don't really consider the big picture of what's involved with police standards and training. And uh, I, I wanted to actually be able to have a conversation kind of longer form over what that entails. I mean, when you look at what your day-to-day responsibilities are as the director of that, what does that look like? Yeah. So I, I it's a great question. And, and candidly, uh, I, I don't know that uh, police training in New Hampshire or police training in general was really on the forefront of anybody's mind, you know, up until the, the, the tragic incident that that occurred last year uh, with the murder of George Floyd, and and so uh, this has been uh, an experience where uh, we've had to address, you know, some of the issues that we see here in New Hampshire and with regard to police training, but. It also, uh, I guess, from a positive point of view, is it, it kind of brought to the forefront, you know, really what what kind of effort and and what kind of things are needed uh, for a police officer to be trained to be ready to go out and serve their communities, uh, you know, in an appropriate proper way. So, um, we are the sole source for recruit uh, police and corrections training, state level corrections training here in the state of New Hampshire. We have one police academy and that police academy, uh, every single police officer that's certified in the state of New Hampshire full-time must attend this academy with very minor exceptions. There may be that they were uh, already through an academy and working as a police officer in another state and they move here. And we do have a reciprocity process to, to certify those officers, but predominantly uh, if you become a police officer in New Hampshire, and it doesn't matter whether you're a trooper, a city police officer, a town police officer, a sheriff, a fishing game officer, a forest ranger, uh, any person who is a certified New Hampshire law enforcement officer uh, must become certified through the police academy. How standard is that across New England? I believe Maine is similar with that. So I've had the the privilege of being a director of a police academy in both uh, here in New Hampshire and down in Massachusetts. And I can tell you those two environments are very different. Uh, New Hampshire, we have a single source uh, recruit training bureau. And in Massachusetts, uh, there are a significant number of regional police academies. And uh, uh, with that brings, you know, some some uh, challenges. Uh, there is some convenience to that, of course. Uh, my opinion is that the challenges far outweigh whatever convenience might be found in that kind of an environment. Uh, Maine is very similar to us, as is Vermont. So, uh, and maybe we enjoy that uh, privilege to have a single uh, training institute because we are smaller states. 
right? Yeah, smaller population. There's a smaller number of jurisdictions you got to deal with, and there isn't Boston, for example, which is quite large. And I'd imagine that population density breeds a whole other need for what sort of training would be required. Yeah, and it's not so much that the required training, in so much as, uh, you know, they they're training thousands of police. We'll use Massachusetts Volume. as an example. <laughs> They do thousands in a year where we do hundreds in a year. So uh, that, you know, that's really uh, the thing that makes that difference, right? Now, where, how does the funding take place for, for police training in New Hampshire? So we are uh, funded uh, by the state of New Hampshire through the general fund. And, uh, you know, the state of New Hampshire recognizes that uh, it is the government's responsibility uh, to take on uh, the training of police officers because it is very important. And, and it is one of those uh, foundation reasons why we have a government is to provide protection and uh, protect the welfare of the citizens. So the state of New Hampshire realizes that as, as uh, a fundamental cost that, that they need to uh, uh, kind of foot the bill on. Uh, it is important to know that while we're funded through the general fund, uh, there is a a funding source uh, that is derived through what we call the penalty assessment program. And, and the penalty assessment is a, a certain percentage that is tacked onto any kind of court fees. So when you pay a speeding ticket or if you pay a fine for having been found guilty in a, a court here in New Hampshire, uh, there is a, a percentage of that fee uh, is referred to as a penalty assessment fund all of those monies are directed into our general fund to help offset the costs of this training. Do you see your uh, funding sway very much from administration to administration in the governor's office? So um, I, I historically, I can only speak for the last uh, 13 months. I've only been here for 13 months, uh, but I have been able to look you know, at past budgets and uh, I can tell you uh, that our 22-23 our budget that we're kind of working through right now, uh, there was a significant increase. It was a 36% total increase from uh, the, the, our, the budget we're in now, right? And uh, all of those increases speak directly to funding uh, mandates that came out of the LEAC Commission. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that as time goes on tonight, but, uh, but generally speaking, uh, we we have historically run a relatively uh, flat budget. There, there doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, spikes up or down uh, historically that I can see. What is the? I'm trying to think of a way to phrase this. I mean, go. Let's let's take a big picture look at what you what you expect the trainees to do and what sort of people do enter the program and what do they go through with your with your training? Yeah. So and and again. Um, you know, these are these are unique times because uh, uh, my I'll give you an idea. My first day was March 16th of uh, 2020. And that was the first day uh, that New Hampshire started to reel back. Uh, Everything. Uh, you know, yeah. A lot of <laughs> a lot of covid prohibitions, you know, where that day was the kickoff day. So my very first official act uh, was to introduce myself to the recruit academy that was in session. And then I gave them 15 minutes to go upstairs and pack all their stuff because they had to leave. 
And uh, we actually shut the academy down for uh, a week so that we could clean the building. And then we had to very, very quickly pivot to uh, be able to continue operations. Uh, we could not stop operations because if we did, it would have caused such a backlog. Uh, it would have impacted the entire state of New Hampshire. And so uh, we had to very quickly leverage technology that you know you and I right now are taking for granted, right? We've been doing this so much, but uh, you can just imagine uh, we had to move quickly and we were in uh, uncharted waters, you know? And um, I gotta hand it to my staff, uh, the people who work for me here, uh, they, they took the challenge head on and literally within a week, we were able to transition to online police academy uh, we were able to continue our operation. Uh, we had to rearrange schedules so that we could accommodate, you know, more of this uh, lecture style learning and we compressed it. Uh, and then we compressed all of the hands-on skills. We pushed that block of instruction to the end of the academy with the hope that we could work with the state to get a handle on COVID and how to deal with COVID and how to work in that kind of environment. So uh, I really, uh, I'm, I'm very lucky to have the staff that we have here. They did a tremendous job and uh, they really, uh, you know, I think uh, people show their true colors when they're were met with a challenge and, and they really, they really hit it out of the park in terms of being able to, to pivot quickly and, and continue operations. Um, now, now, with that said, I'll answer your question, right? And and the question is, you know, what is a what is a typical academy like? I think that's what you're asking me. Yes. And and it, right now, as it exists, it's a 16 week program. Uh, that 16 week program is historically it's been residential, so the recruit shows up on a Monday, and they live here. Uh, we have dorm rooms upstairs. It's a paramilitary environment. Uh, that is done for a variety of reasons to include just the fact that, you know, we have to organize a whole large group of people. We have to organize them quickly. We have to be able to hold them accountable very quickly, identify individuals very quickly. So it, it just makes more sense to operate in that kind of environment. Um, we we uh, march them back and forth to uh, New Hampshire Tech, which is right across the street from us for dining services. We don't have an on-site dining facility. Uh, and then on Friday afternoons, when they're finished with class, uh, we release them for the weekend. They go back home and um, they'll do that for 16 weeks. And during their time here, uh, this is very much a vocational school, right? So we teach some stuff in a classroom. Uh, there's a lot of hands-on training, obviously. And then uh, we also will put the recruits in uh, dynamic scenario training and and when we say dynamic scenario training, it's not, you know, a hundred miles an hour all the time, exciting stuff. Uh, you know, a lot of it is, is really the day-to-day -day function of a police officer, which is, you know, go and ask somebody questions about a complaint that you're taking, because that that's really what they do. Uh, we make them write a lot of reports here uh, because they have to practice writing reports. Uh, it's not nearly as glamorous as uh, television makes it out to be, right? Uh, it's it's in, oftentimes very mundane work, but it has to be done correctly. Um, and, and those types of scenarios really kind of uh, 
we, we do more of that than we do uh, what we call simunitions training or, you know, dynamic defensive tactics training. We do do that stuff, but we really need to make sure that we're, we're uh, covering those topic areas that really make up, uh, you know, the, the, the day in the life of a police officer. Yeah, that's something that's not considered very much. My day, my day job's at the law school here in Concord. So the the legal implications of the off of an officer not doing their job correctly with correct records has could have tremendous impacts with the entire department. Absolutely, absolutely, and something you know that I learned a long time ago from um, Captain Chuck Hemp, who was a, a, a tremendous investigator down in Florida, and then uh, taught here at the police academy for a number of years. You know, he he always told the story of uh, a police officer down in Florida uh, who solved a homicide because that police officer took a very clean set of prints from a person who he had arrested for a very minor traffic accident. And that print card that that officer did exactly the way he was trained to do was the very piece of information that led to solving uh, a homicide case. And it's because the officer did their job the way they were supposed to, even though it wasn't exciting, it was just a low end, you know, motor vehicle uh, violation. He had to take a set of prints. He did it to the best of his ability. And and so to your point, AJ, it's it's that mundane stuff that really does make the difference, uh, you know, when you're trying to, you know, solve cases and, and uh, do good police work. How often does the curriculum have to change and update over time? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and uh, you know, one of the things that is happening right now, as a matter of fact, we're getting ready to release uh this, this survey, either at the end of this week or next week, uh, we here at Police Standards and Training, we, we have to conduct what we call a job task analysis at JTA. And that uh, I've had a, a, a tremendous opportunity to work with a graduate student through uh, the University of New Hampshire, uh, who is uh, working on uh, a justice studies uh, degree and I've worked with Justice Works. There's a number of professors over there. And uh, I asked them, you know, would you consider uh, a job task analysis as maybe a, a, a capstone project? And they were very excited to work with us. So uh, that graduate student is just finishing up, uh, putting the fine points on this survey, and we're getting ready to push that JTA out. When the results of that JTA come back, those results, will in essence serve as the foundation for a review of our curriculum. And uh, we will uh, look at our curriculum based on the results and decide whether we need to rewrite things, augment things, amend things, and maybe eliminate some things or add more hours to a particular topic. And uh, that, that's, that's a heavy lift. That, that takes a lot of uh, people in the room, a lot of brain power, and, and a lot of discussion back and forth with subject matter experts. So we're going to get the results quickly. I see that the, the curriculum review and possible rewrite uh, will take months after we get that, that information. But uh, very exciting. I'm really looking forward to, to seeing those results. So that JTA should be done 
every three to five years, just so okay. that we're staying on the mark, right? And um, and the other thing is we, we might and that's see pretty that. frequent for an academic situation. It, <laughs> it, it, it really is. Spent his entire career in higher ed. That's a very quick turnaround. It is, and 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 it needs to be because uh, we have to be as contemporary as possible with the training, right? Because things are moving and changing all the time. We uh, laws change every year, and those law changes directly impact the the lesson plans that we have here at the police academy. So we we really have to uh, make sure that we are staying as contemporary as possible, and and uh, providing the most up up to date uh, information to those recruits as they go through the academy. You listen to New England Taken to BKXL, 1450 AM, 103.9 FM, and nhtalkradio.com. Get the back episodes of the sh- get the back episodes of the show at thenewenglandtake.com. We're gonna take a quick break. Be back after this. Welcome back to the New England Taken to BKXL, 1450 AM, 103.9 FM, and nhtalkradio.com. You can check out our podcast feed at thenewenglandtake.com. Get all the back episodes. Very excited this week to have John Skippa, who's the director of New Hampshire Police Standards and Training. And let, let's start getting into the current events a little bit. We kind, of, we kind of touched on it a little bit, but we said first segment, we set a good groundwork for what, what the police academy does and what your role is. And uh, I'm, it's very interesting that you're, you look at what needs to be reformed every three to five years to make sure you guys are up to date. But how do current events, like what has happened over the last year and a half, affect what goes on at the academy, whether it's COVID, whether it's just national stories like George Floyd? And how do those have a more direct impact in how you guys operate? Yeah. So let's agree that um, uh, there is there are things that are happening in our country nationally. And, and clearly, uh, being in those conversations and understanding national impact issues is very important for us here in New Hampshire. But it's equally important and probably more important for us to make sure that we are addressing the issues that occur here in New Hampshire. Uh, My responsibility as the director of New Hampshire Police Standards and Training is to make sure uh, that we are serving the state of New Hampshire uh, and making sure that we are producing competent, professional, courageous police officers to serve our state. And uh, and I think, you, you know, uh, again, the, 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 the tragic murder of, of George Floyd uh, caused every single police trainer uh, in every state of our country, and, and let's agree, across the world, right, to, to really take a hard look at what we're doing here in New Hampshire. And, and uh, I can tell you, I, I, was, uh, uh, I was privileged to be uh, allowed to participate as a LEAC commissioner. Uh, the governor appointed uh, me as the director of police academy to be part of that commission. And, uh, and, I, and I'll, I'll tell you, I took some flack because I said, you know, uh, overall in New Hampshire, we do a pretty good job. We do a, uh, we do a pretty good job of, of uh, policing our own. We do a, a pretty good job of making sure that the police officers 
uh, receive uh, good training, solid training. Uh, we hold police officers accountable in this state. Now, as you can imagine, um, uh, that that uh, declaration uh, was not received well by uh, some people, and I was called out on it on a number of occasions. But I, I stand by what I say because I, I, I guess my you know the backup statement would be. Uh, we, you don't see police officers choking people here in New Hampshire. Uh, you don't see police officers doing what happens, you know, in other parts of the country here in New Hampshire. Uh, when you see a police officer or hear of a police officer who has uh, committed a crime, uh, they, they're dealt with very swiftly. And, and, um, and you only need to look at the paper to understand that that's, that's how it goes here. Uh, so, I, you know, I stand by what I said, but that doesn't mean, and, and you know, I really want to make sure that people understand that, that doesn't mean that there's no room for improvement. That doesn't mean that me as the leader of this organization and all of the chiefs, the colonel of the state police, all the sheriffs, we all recognize that we need to always look within to see what we can do better, Right. And, and if, as a leader of any organization, if you are not looking to make your organization better and, and be forward leaning, then you shouldn't hold that position, right? And, and I recognize that there's a lot of steps that we needed to take. I'll, I'll tell you right now, the day that, that uh, George Floyd died, I asked uh, my training staff to bring me the lesson plans for our defensive tactics program, our cultural diversity program, our bias program, our ethics program, our communication program. I asked for that material that day because I wanted to see where we stood. And I will tell you right now, uh, some of those areas we stood very firmly on high ground. Uh, there was one area in particular that we absolutely uh, were not doing a good job on, and that was implicit bias and cultural diversity. We had a two hour block of instruction on something that is vitally important to, uh, to train people in who have to work with other people. It's a, this is a people job, right? And um, with the help of uh, Assistant Commissioner Eddie Edwards, uh, who's actually a good friend of mine, uh, he and I got together, we put together a working group of professional people uh, that included uh, folks from uh, UNH, from Keene State, uh, the ACLU, we brought a lot of people into the room to really look hard at what we were delivering for that block of instruction at a recruit level. And ultimately, uh, what we came out of that uh, discussion with, and we went from two hours of implicit bias and procedural justice training to 16 hours. And uh, that was that program was developed uh, by all of those constituents that made up that work group. I'm very proud of that work and, and uh, very proud of, of Lieutenant, Lieutenant James Watson, who is a training specialist here. And he led that, that working group. And in my opinion, it's a, it's a great, uh, great lesson plan. What sorts of specific things did you expand upon to fill in those other 14 hours? So we, uh, the, um, we did not talk about implicit bias at all. Uh, oh, really? that was, yeah, that was just not even in the lesson plan. It was, it was really a, a like a cultural diversity two hour 
you know, understand that we come from different cultures kind of program. I don't think it was a bad program. I just, it did not clearly have what we needed to have, right? So we really, really expounded on the uh, implicit bias. Uh, it's, it's, again, it's great work. Uh, and, and we talk about in our, in our lesson plan and facilitator's guide, we don't just talk about race. We talk about culture. We talk about groups that have been marginalized in the past, gay and lesbian community. We, we, we make sure that we're including that group. We want to make sure that police officers, when they graduate, understand that they are going to interact with people daily who are representative of different groups. And you cannot bring your own personal bias into that kind of a dynamic and still provide professional services, right? You have to recognize that you have the bias. And then we teach how to apply procedural justice. In other words, you're making decisions based on facts uh, and you're not letting your personal bias, and we all have it, AJ, you have it, I have it, we all have it. It's human nature. Uh, but as a police officer, you can't be making decisions uh, because of bias or emotion. You have to you have to work in a procedural way. And and so again, I'm very proud of of how we we took two hours, really expounded on that, and really gave uh, the recruits some really strong tools to to carry with them as they begin their careers in in communications, cultural bias, uh, or implicit bias, and and that procedural justice, the way to, to address problems in a proper way. Did you get any reflections from what I'd imagine can be very adversarial organizations like the ACLU and certain aspects of the university on how the, on either the, on what actually ended up in the program, whether it met what they thought was best? Yeah. So, um, you know, let's agree that if you put uh, six or eight people in a room, uh, they will all tell you that you have to, you have to go with what I think. Right. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. and, and, um, and I, and I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Uh, I told them, listen, we can't make this class a week long because like I have to teach other things there too. Right. Um, I feel very confident that if you spoke with any of the people that made up that working group, they would tell you, Hey, listen, I didn't get everything that I wanted in there, but I really did get a lot of what I wanted in there. And I think any one of those people would say, you know what, really feel good about moving the ball down the field. This is a whole lot better than than what they had before, if that makes any sense, you know. Um, and, and, you know, I'm sure that uh, uh, each each individual constituent probably had something that something else that they wanted in that block of instruction. But. Uh, you know, again, we, we, uh, we're doing the best we can with the resources we have and the time that we have to do them in. So, so I mean, this addresses new officers, new recruits that are coming through the system. We haven't really talked about what happens after they've left the academy. Mm -hmm. what, what does that look like in this state? Yeah, so uh, initially and, and really for the length of my career, and I've been a police officer in the state of New Hampshire for uh, 32 years now, right? And uh, uh, we we have historically had a eight-hour in-service uh, mandate. So in order for you to maintain your certification as a police officer, 
you had to have at least eight hours of in-service training. And that training uh, could be defined uh, by the department head. So, uh, you know, if I was the chief of a police department that uh, had a lake in it, that I, I might say, listen, I need all my people to have eight hours of instruction on how to identify uh, boats and, and uh, how to identify VIN numbers on boats and hull numbers and, you know, things like that. So it's applicable to their job, right? But there was never any state mandated classes. So one of the things that came out of the LEAC commission, and we keep talking about the LEAC commission, the LEAC commission. Yeah. Was, can you give a big picture of what it is and where it came from? Yeah. So, uh, you know, when, when, uh, when George Floyd was murdered, uh, again, we talked about how every state kind of stopped for a second and said, okay, we need to look at what we're doing here in our state. And Governor Sununu, uh, uh, you know, very quickly recognized, hey, listen, I'm putting a group together. Uh, he established the commission and uh, he put on that commission a number of different stakeholders to include members from uh, the AG's office, the police, police training, defense attorneys, uh, members of uh, the public. Uh, it was a representative from the ACLU, uh, representatives from the NAACP. Uh, it was a very, very diverse group of people. And we were asked to look at present state and then provide future recommendations for law enforcement uh, training, accountability, transparency uh, and community interaction. And uh, that, that commission, uh, we worked, sometimes it was six hours a day, uh, having discussions, receiving public testimony, uh, reviewing documents. Uh, uh, Deputy General Jane Young uh, was the chairperson for this commission and you know, really, I think, did a phenomenal job of, of uh, steering the group and, and keeping us on track and keeping us focused. Uh, it's one of, the, one of the proudest things I've done as a police officer was to be a member of this group. And again, you know, you talked, AJ, about uh, you get more than two people in a room and they all have an opinion. Uh, there was some lively discussions. And, um, I, you know, I, I would ask everyone to, to know that all of those discussions, the, the tape discussions and all the product that came out of that study uh, is posted on the governor's website. So you, anybody can look at it or listen to it if they want. Uh, and did everyone get exactly what they wanted? No, but were we all able, all of those diverse perspectives, uh, were we all able to come to common ground? And we were, and, and many times uh, what you thought might've been contentious was not. Everybody said, no, we, we all agree on this. And uh, we had made a deal as a group that we would, unless it was uh, unanimous, we wouldn't put it forward as a recommendation. And I am so proud of the work that we did. Uh, and, and based on that commission report, and I would ask all of your listeners to please look at it if you have any interest at all. Uh, the governor then set forth in executive order 2020-19, a number of mandates uh, that he wanted to move, move very quickly forward on 
in support of those LEAC recommendations. So to kind of circle back to your, your ongoing training question about in-service training, we went from having eight hours of in-service training that could be on any topic. Now police officers moving forward will be required annually to receive two hours at minimum, two hours of training on implicit bias and cultural diversity, two hours of training on ethics, and two hours of training on de-escalation and tactical communications. So now the state is mandating certain topics annually for those in-service officers to just review those topics every single year on top of increasing the number of total training hours over the next three years from eight per year all the way up to 24 per year. And that is a much more contemporary uh, standard to hold our police officers to. So that, that's, that's really how we're addressing in-service officers uh, going forward. You're listening to New England Take and WKXL, 1450 AM, 13.9 FM, and nhtalkradio.com. I'm your host, AJ Kirstead. We're joined by uh, John Skipper, who's the director of New Hampshire Police Standards and Training. We're going to be taking a quick break. So while while we're taking this, please be sure to check out the newenglandtake.com, where you can get the back episodes uh, and subscribe to our podcast feeds. And definitely reach out to me also. We're looking for current for new advertisers to help support the show to keep us on the air. I'm looking to expand to two hours a week, uh, which uh, I, I give us some longer interviews. We can get more musicians on the air, support some local nonprofits and businesses while we're at it by being able to get more people here to talk about what they're doing. So please be sure to reach out to me. It's the New England Take at gmail.com or check out the New England Take.com for my contact information. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the New England Take and WKXL, 1450 AM, 13.9 FM, and nhtalkradio.com. I'm your host, AJ Kierstead, joined by John Skippa, Director of New Hampshire Police Standards and Training. So let's kind of continue a little bit off of our discussion on continuing education, but what, for you personally, as the head of, as the head of your department, what is your perfect world when it comes to the amount of training new officers and continuing education for existing officers would be? Is it more? Is it a different? Is it better quality? I mean, what sorts of things really would, if you were given an infinite infinite amount of money, you'd want to see? Wow, I I didn't know it was uh, it was going to be Christmas today. That's exciting, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, um, we are very fortunate here in the state of New Hampshire to have the facility that we have as a training academy. Uh, we have outgrown it. Uh, it is a little bit smaller than than it should be. Uh, you know, certainly our infrastructure could use some expansion and some renovation. Uh, it's an old building. Uh, nonetheless, uh, we are very fortunate to have what we have because a lot of states don't have this. So uh, I, I I don't forget the fact that we are as, as lucky as we are with regard to, to training. Uh, and this is, uh, this is something that I think every state in our country kind of deals with right now. Uh, you have to remember that this is a vocational school and, and it teaches a trade. It teaches a profession. It, it, it's not only book learning, but, it's also doing things, right? You have to be able to drive a car and shoot a gun and 
apply handcuffs and, and things like that, very, uh, very hands-on things. But you also have to have very clear understanding of the law. You have to understand how to apply the law. You have to understand how to work with people. So we really have a, a lot of a diverse amount of things that we have to kind of get these new police recruits up to speed on, right? The other thing you have to remember is that we are in an adult learning environment. We're not, this is not, um, we have, to, we have to recognize and give value to the adults that come into our program because they bring with them a vast amount of experience, life experience, right? They're very, very smart people. And, you know, many of them come from different lines of work and they wanted to become a police officer. They may have been in the military. We have had lawyers come through here. We've had nurses come through here. So, so you also have to recognize from a training point of view that you're dealing with adults. Adults learn differently than younger people do. So, you know, I would like to see us have the opportunity and the space to be able to really increase the amount of scenario type training. Uh, scenario training, particularly for adults, uh, makes a significant impact, right? Uh, they not only learn by going through the scenario, but they also learn by watching other adults go through a scenario. And then they learn again when they have a debriefing or discussion after they go through that event, right? You don't ever want the first time uh, for a police officer to stop a car is the, the night after they graduated. You really want them to practice that over and over and over again. Um, you know, the other thing is, uh, you know, we're probably on the, the shorter end of average time for a police uh, academy. Uh, we're, we're probably going to see uh, the academy probably get a little bit lengthened after the JTA survey comes back because you, you know, you can only do so much in 16 weeks and it may I have a very strong feeling we're probably going to have to expand this a little bit. Um, I know down in Massachusetts, it's a 20 week program. So uh, now they structure it a little bit different. Uh, our hours are not too far away from each other, total hours. Right. But uh, so we're probably going to see a little bit of a length uh, of the Academy. We have to build in a lot more scenario training, which is actually something that was identified in LEAC and, and set forth in the governor's executive order. Um, but you know, I, I, we can always use more help. I mean, you know, you're asking me what, what my dream world looks like. More bodies. I'd imagine be very helpful. Yeah. Because, uh, and, and again, uh, from a very pragmatic point of view, you have, let's say you have 50 people in a classroom. We actually operated about seven, uh, check that 67 people per recruit Academy for the police. That's too many people. But we have to get as many people through at a time because we can only run one class at a time. So, uh, but let's, for the sake of the example, we have 50 people. We're putting them through a scenario. And the scenario is a simple motor vehicle stop where they have to write somebody a ticket. Well, you need, uh, you need two cars to do that. You subject car and a police car. You need somebody to drive the subject car. You need an evaluator to evaluate the police officer as they go through the scenario. And now we have uh, 49 people sitting in a room waiting their turn. 
Well, if we had two more cars and two more trainers, we could set up another scenario. But the problem is with scenario training, to, to have it be meaningful and to have it have value, that recruit has to actually go through the scenario. That's 20 minutes, right? So for 20 minutes, we have a bunch of people waiting in a room for their turn. If we could increase the number of scenarios, we could reduce the amount of time that the student is waiting for their turn. Uh, and that's something that, you know, we, we try to get around with scheduling. We try to break up the group a little bit. So one group's doing scenarios, another group is shooting on the range. But there again, now we have to have people on the range to keep everybody safe up there and, and do the teaching. Plus we have to have people for the scenario. So if I could double my staff, that would be, that would be a dream come true. Uh, the governor, I'll tell you, was very, very supportive of uh, our agency uh, and, and allowed us to, to ask and budget for uh, two new full-time positions and two part-time positions to move these, these types of uh, issues forward, to be able to address these issues, right? And uh, the governor was very supportive of that and uh, put it in his budget. And uh, it, it, both the House and the Senate have been very supportive of it as well. So, uh, you know, we're, we're definitely moving in the right direction. So we have like three and a half minutes left. So I just want to quickly just reinforce one of the points you said and the importance of scenario training. I mean, that's the one thing any of the, uh, the military guys when they're out, like Jocko Willink and such, have really – harped on repeatedly and was especially evident especially in the was i think her name was kim potter over in minneapolis she reached for the for her gun instead of her taser i'm really curious how much training she had on a regular basis every year over her decades she's like 26 years on the force or something like that mm -hmm. how often is she practicing pulling out her taser versus her gun and things like that to be used to being handling certain situations is something you need to constantly be trained on on a regular basis. You know, you make a great point. And, and this is, a, a, again, a tragic, tragic event. Uh, the one thing that cannot be forgotten is that police officers are humans. We're human beings and we're trying to do the best that we can. Uh, police officers have to make very quick decisions with very limited information. Sometimes almost no information uh, in, in a life-threatening event. Uh, training really helps address a vast amount of that, right? Uh, but it's also really important to understand how the human mind works in a chaotic event. And, and, and it, we need to also stress that here at the police academy and ongoing throughout a police officer's career. Uh, you know, the human body oftentimes will make a decision quickly because they're used to doing that. And now they don't have to think about that decision. They can move on to a different decision in their head. And the unfortunate truth is uh, that that taser V pistol uh, confusion, that is not the first time it has happened in our country. It is always tragic. Uh, it was a human mistake. It was not there was nothing nefarious about it. Uh, it was not based in any kind of malice or forethought. It, it was it was a horrible, tragic, life-altering mistake. And uh, 
and, and that is the true tragedy uh, that that young man's life is gone, his family will suffer, and that police officer and and their department will carry that with them for the rest of their lives as well. So it, it really, you know, scenario training can really help prevent those types of things uh, with the understanding that cops are human and and even trying to do the best we can, uh, we're, we're human and we're going to make mistakes as well. Give the 20-second plug. Where can people learn more about what you guys are doing and where can people check out the LEAC Commission Report? Yeah, I, so uh, please go to uh, the governor's website. Uh, there is a, a tab for the LEAC Commission. Uh, it has every bit of testimony. It has our summary report. Uh, it has the uh, governor's executive order. And it has 30-day progress reports from myself, uh, police and training, Department of Safety, the Attorney General's office. Uh, and, uh, and candidly, if any of you out there have a question or a concern, please feel free to reach out to me. I'm happy to, to help uh, anybody understand what we're trying to accomplish here. Uh, and AJ, thank you very much for the opportunity to be with you tonight. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining me, and thank you everyone for listening to the New England Take. We'll be back next week.